You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Hello, everyone. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. With Audible, you get a free audiobook to download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash historyofpersia. There are over 180,000 titles to choose from on your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or whatever device it is you use to listen to podcasts and music. And now, of course, audiobooks. Personally, I have to recommend the audiobook version of Eric H. Klein's 1177 BC, The Year the Civilization Collapsed. It's an excellent and easy-to-follow book on the mystery surrounding the end of the Bronze Age in the Eastern Mediterranean. The narrator... Andy Kaplow, is just awesome. Not only is he engaging in general, but he does different voices when reading quotes from ancient kings and pharaohs that really pull you in. It's great stuff, and it's free for 30 days, then $14.95 a month afterwards. And if you ever decide you want to cancel that subscription, you do get to keep all of the books you already have. So go to audibletrial.com slash historyofpersia, or follow the links in the episode description of the website support page. Welcome to the History of Persia. This is episode 19, Three Kings and the Magi. No, I'm not doing an early Christmas episode. I'll have to save those particular magi until we're into the Parthians. Today's title actually refers to the main figures in today's narrative. The three kings, Cambyses, Bardia, and Darius, and two magi, Gomata and Patizathes, who disrupted the royal line. Today's episode is a big and complicated one, so before diving into that wholesale, I want to call attention to Patreon. To those that have already contributed your support, thank you so much, I'm completely blown away. To those who are unsure of what it is, Patreon is a website that helps listeners like you support online creators like me in exchange for little bonuses. 
Supporting the history of Persia on Patreon can give you access to things like an advertisement-free version of the podcast feed and a monthly bonus episode. If you sign up before September 25th, 2019, next Wednesday, you'll also get a free cuneiform History of Persia sticker, so please come check that out. Links are in the episode description and on the website. Back to the story, then. Our last episode covered the last of the stories from the reign of Cambyses II, son of Cyrus the Great. That was all about Polycrates, the tyrant of Samos, and his dealings with the Persians in the Aegean and Anatolia before his death in 522 BCE. At the end of the episode, I talked a bit about Oroites, satrap of Sparta, and his dealings in the aftermath of Cambyses' death from episode 17, The Mad King. The apparent rebellion and secession of Oroites in the late 520s was made possible by today's topic, which I'm very excited to talk about. Today, we're talking about Bardia, the younger son of Cyrus the Great, and the third Persian to claim the royal titles. He was the great king, king of kings, king of Persia, scion of kings, king of lands. At least, he might have been. We've got a lot to discuss. And it's that discussion, and the number of times I'll have to talk about conflicting sources and opinions, that make Bardia one of my favorite subjects in Persian history. It's so complex that there's almost an endless amount of factors to discuss, even more if you're willing to get speculative. For that reason, I want to break the reign of Bardia up into two episodes, which is more attention than most books give to him. This one will cover the traditional sequence of events, the major figures, and some of the controversy surrounding the year 522 BCE. For now, though, I'm going to cover the events of 522 like I would with any other event in the narrative. When the sources present different versions of the story, I'll compare them for their events, but not their interpretation just yet. For today's purposes, I'm going to relay the story as given by Darius and the classical Greek and Roman sources. That means today's narrative will operate under the assumption that Cambyses had his brother assassinated, but his death was kept a secret, and at some point, an imposter from a group of people called the Magi falsely claimed to be Bardia, and claimed the kingship of Persia while Cambyses was on his way home from Egypt. In that regard, this episode about Bardia will, ironically, be telling a story without Bardia in most of it. Also, to keep things clear, I'm going to stick with one set of names because many of the major figures in today's events are given different names in different sources. I discussed this a little bit for Bardia back in episode 14. For my purposes, I'll use the names provided in the Behistun inscription. Bardia is the name of Cyrus the Great's younger son, assassinated by his brother Cambyses. Gomada is the name of the Magi impostor who took Bardia's place and assumed power for himself. And the often overlooked fourth and final party in today's episode is Gomada's brother. This brother isn't mentioned at Behistun, so I'll use Herodotus's name for him, Patizathes. And maybe just bookmark this timestamp so you can go back and listen to it all again. This episode's going to be weird. There's just one more thing to get out of the way. You know, cross your T's, dot your I's, make sure all the right lines were initialed, and explain what a magi is. I've used that word a couple of times and wasn't really planning on explaining it until later, but I'll be saying it so many times today that it just doesn't make sense to not explain it. I feel a bit like the snake eating its own tail here, because what exactly the accounts of Bardia and Gomada mean by magi, and what the old Persian language means by the same word, kind of feed off one another. I really struggle trying to decide where to put this tangent, but ultimately, I think you need to know it for this episode, so it's going here, and I'm going to hope it's not too disruptive. The first thing to know is that a magi is grammatically incorrect. That's actually the plural. So, gomata is a magus. And if you really want to get down to the linguistic details, magus is the Latin version of the Greek magos, and in classical Latin, magi, the plural version, would be pronounced as something like magi. And magos is itself the Greek version of the Persian and Median word magush, 
To keep things straightforward, I'm going to continue to use the American anglicized Latin because I think it's just more familiar with more people with the Magi in the Christmas narrative. The Magi, plural, started as a Median tribe or ethnic group, but their tribe also became the priests of Median society. It's not unlike the Levites of the Biblical Old Testament, or even the Brahmin in ancient India if you stretch a bit further. Essentially, they were a hereditary class of religious leaders and ethnically Median. They seem to have roots in the Avesta, where the word Magavan denotes ritual cleanliness of some sort, but the Avestan word for priest was Athravan, so the exact connection is unclear. It may just be that the Median word for priest shared a root word with Magavan in Avestan. The Avestan connection, and their later roles in the Persian court, make it clear that it was an explicit Zoroastrian or at least Mazda-worshipping connotation to the Magi, but when exactly that solidified or if the Magi ever included priests dedicated primarily to other divinities is unknown. What is clear is that the Magi were considered a Persian or Mazda-Yasna phenomenon. In Elamite documents, Magi are distinguished from other priests in some texts, and not distinguished in still others, possibly varying depending on the local religious situation. Their exact religious roles are just as clear as anything else in ancient Persian religion. That is to say, not clear at all. A few religious titles seem to have been associated with the Magi that help illuminate a little. There's Piramazda, which means something like outstanding memorizers possibly indicating that the Avestan hymns and religious rites were committed to memory as a set of oral traditions. There's also Atarvasha, which means fire watcher. That suggests that the Magi kept the sacred fires lit, a very important duty in Zoroastrian tradition, and Atharvapati, translated as either fire priest or supreme priest. Either version just calls more attention to their role as religious leaders. Greek documents provide a little more detail, just not much that we wouldn't have guessed from the broad category of ancient priests. The Magi poured libations, sacrificed animals, maintained shrines, read omens, and performed sacred rituals with the requisite chants. None of that vague description really tells us anything that we don't know from other ancient priesthoods. However, it's a good to have some ancient sources to confirm those details for us. As ever, their role in the pre-Darius period is unclear. However, post-Darius, we know that they filled both religious and secular administrative positions, both in the royal court and the courts of the satraps and nobles from Persia to Egypt, and presumably in the east as well. The most notable concentration outside of Iran was in Mesopotamia around Babylon. Given the presence of at least two magi at Cambyses' court in today's story, I think we can probably say that this practice of priests acting as government admins was at least developing in the Taisbid period. Basically, Gomada the Magus actually means Gomada the Mede from the priestly caste. So, with those caveats in mind, let's do this one more time. In 530 BCE, Cyrus the Great died in a battle on the northeastern frontiers of his empire. He gave his elder son Cambyses his empire and all the royal titles of the great king. He gave his younger son, Bardia, personal rule over a large swath of Iranian and Central Asian territory. Bardia's territory spanned multiple provinces, though exactly which provinces has been contested depending on which ancient author you happen to be reading at the time. Sometime between 530 and 523, Cambyses had Bardia assassinated. Most of our sources follow the official account promulgated by King Darius after he came to power, and say that Bardia died before Cambyses invaded Egypt in 525 BCE. Herodotus and the later sources that base their narrative on his say that Bardia accompanied his brother to Egypt, but was sent home and killed midway through the Persian campaigns in Africa. In either version of the story, the death was kept a secret, known only to Cambyses and the Magi Gomada, with one or two other members of the Persian court also in on the secret, depending on your source. 
When I wrapped up Cambyses' narrative back in episode 17, I finished at the point that Cambyses received word that somebody had just usurped his throne back home. This person claimed to be his deceased brother in Persia, but before Cambyses could ever get home and confront this rebellion, he died of natural causes in the Syrian town of Egbadana, possibly the site modern scholars recognize as the town of Hama. Now, let's zoom casually halfway across the Persian Empire to the Persian home province of Parsa. I'll tell you the straightforward version of events first, partly because knowing that helps give a sense of the confusion when I break it all apart, and partly because it's just much more compelling to tell a story this way. Sometime before 522 BCE, Cambyses had killed his brother Bardia, but nobody knew that except for the assassin Prexaspes and two other courtiers, the Magos Gomata and Gomata's own brother named Padizathes. While Cambyses was in Egypt, his subjects grew resentful and started agitating against him. There may have been small armed revolts around the empire. Even in the central provinces of Persia, Media, and Babylonia, support was dwindling for Cambyses. Then, everything changed. Padizathes conspired with Gomata, who had been left as the steward of the king's home, to declare himself king in Bardia's name, and that's just what happened. On March 11th, 522 BCE, Gomata proclaimed publicly that he was Bardia, and that Bardia would be taking over his brother's position as king. To further protect his identity, he imprisoned the princesses and other royal women of the harem in their own private compartments to prevent them from exposing his true identity. When Prexaspes decided that he was more loyal to Cambyses as a servant to the king than as a hitman, he broke his silence and tried to expose the Magi and their plot. He publicly proclaimed that Gomata was impersonating the deceased prince. He either committed suicide or was executed on Gomata's orders, depending on which source you ask. For just less than four months, the empire hung in a state of pseudo-rebellion as most of the provinces sided with the man they thought was Bardia, but Cambyses was still making his way out of Egypt. But then Cambyses died of an infection and Bardia was the legitimate king one way or the other. Or rather, he would have been if Gomata had not been playing the part. Gomata reaffirmed himself as king of kings on July 1st and continued to rule his stolen empire for a few more months. In that time, a cohort of seven Persian nobles started to plot against the Magi. These were Darius, Otanes, Gobrius, Aspathenes, Intaphrenes, Megabyzos, and Hidarnes. Darius, and plausibly the rest, had served as a spear-bearer under Cambyses during the Egyptian campaign, and did not trust their new king. Otanes's daughter, Phaedime, was confined to the harem with the other royal wives most of the time, but she was also a favorite wife of the new king, and close enough to the usurper to uncover his true identity. She was able to communicate this with her father and his allies, already suspicious of the man on the throne. Once the ruse was uncovered, the seven conspirators started planning. They knew that they had to remove Gomata and his brother from power, but had to debate over what to do next, or more accurately, who they should replace Gomata with. Obviously, it would have to be one of their own number, but who should that have been? Despite some initial arguing, they settled on Darius, a fourth cousin several times removed from Cyrus the Great. The seven went to the royal fortress in Media, called Sika Yahuvati. They snuck in and quietly made their way to the royal bedchamber where Gomata and Padizathes were conferencing killing or detaining the few people who tried to stop them along the way, like a level of Assassin's Creed. Or maybe Prince of Persia is the better video game comparison here. When they reached the royal apartments, the Seven burst in and the two Magi grabbed the nearest weapons they could to defend themselves. They fought well, wounding a few of their attackers, but were finally overcome by the number of conspirators attacking them. Gomata himself was grappling with Gabrius, but the other six nobles hesitated, afraid that if they attacked with a sword or spear, it would stab into both combatants. 
But Darius took the initiative here and lunged with a knife, killing the usurper and leaving his friend unharmed. They decapitated the corpses of both magi and paraded their heads around, proclaiming that they had just rescued the kingdom from evil liars. All right, you can all stop now. That's the coolest story I'm ever going to get to tell on this show. Peeking at episode 19 isn't great, but seriously, I talk about actual recorded events in history here. How am I supposed to top that? It reads like a synopsis of an action movie with more dates. It's also kind of entirely made up. That story is a synthesis of about a half dozen historical sources for the same event. I took the major elements that overlapped and worked in the events they didn't wherever they fit best. It's flat out disingenuous to the actual events, and yet it's basically what all those other sources were doing. The major classical accounts of these events are Herodotus, as usual, and the Roman Pompeius Trogus, as epitomized by the later Roman author Justin, and Theseus, as summarized in a whole bunch of different places. Xenophon and a smattering of poets and playwrights also make mention of the events, adding more confusion than clarity. One thing to note is that Trogus probably had access to the most Greek accounts, but tends to closely mimic Herodotus. However, there are still some unique elements. The major Persian account of these events is the Behistun inscription of King Darius, or Darius the Great, as I'll start calling him more often now. This is also the earliest account, and the one I'll talk about on its own first. But for now, I want to keep talking about the events of 522 BC as a whole. We have a truly remarkable amount of information about this seven-month span of antiquity, down to exact dates provided by Darius's scribes at Behistun. Between Darius's introduction of major royal inscriptions, increased interaction with Greece, and prolonged rule over Mesopotamia and Egypt, this is the point in Persian history where we really start getting better sources, and it's sort of like coming out of a dark room and into the sun. For just one moment when you come into the light, we have this disorienting intensity, and then vision starts returning to normal. With Herodotus, Theseus, Trogus, and Darius as our main sources of information, there are a couple of elements that are consistent across each version. All of them start with Cambyses and Bardia. It's a 50-50 split for when Cambyses kills his brother, but it happened before or during the Egyptian campaign. By 522, Bardia was dead. The next step is Bardia's replacement by Gomada. The Greek and Roman sources tell us that after Bardia was killed, a Median Magus who looked just like the dead prince replaced him. Only Theseus tells us that Cambyses had anything to do with this, while the other two say that Gomada was egged on by his brother and imply ignorance for the king. Which brings me to my next point. In all three major classical sources, Gomada only takes the throne at the prompting of another person at court, which is a feature of the story that I think is often overlooked when other popular sources talk about this or give a summary of Persian history. The Behistun inscription doesn't mention Gomada's appearance or family members at all. Behistun doesn't mention the seven conspirators either, but they appear in all three major classical sources with only some variation in their names. So what's the deal with this Behistun inscription you've heard so much about? Much like the Magi, I feel like I'm eating my own tail. Plain and simple, it's a royal inscription at a site called Behistun. Or Behistun. Or Bisatun. Or just Bistun. You'll see all of them. Behistun was a mountain of sacred importance going back to Elamite times. And after he had established himself as king... Darius ordered that a monument detailing his rise to power be carved into the side of that mountain, possibly also ordering that his scribes invent the old Persian writing system for the occasion. I want to go into full, piece-by-piece -piece detail of this monument, but only after covering everything it depicts. So for now, the important detail is that it's Darius's official propaganda version of how he came to power. More explicit detail to come in due course. Darius's version of events is short and self-aggrandizing, cutting the story of 522 down to the bare minimum characters, namely himself, Gomada, Bardia, 
and Cambyses. Cambyses killed Bardia. It was a secret. Gomata usurped the throne. Cambyses died. Darius overthrew the evil Magus. And then we're on to more triumphant stories of the king and his conquests. Despite its brevity, the Behistun inscription is valuable for providing concrete dates and locations to the events, and providing a baseline to gauge the other versions from. It was the first, the only Persian, and the only first-hand version of these events that we have. It's from this account that scholars tend to measure how much the Western authors added or changed. Herodotus comes next in both time and significance. The Greek historian's version is the oldest detailed account of these events. And the last- I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. That might have gotten its additional information from people who actually lived through 522 or their children despite being written decades later. Herodotus is the first to establish that Gaumata was already in the Persian court, and he had a brother who was actually more conniving than he was. In Herodotus, it's only on Patizathes prompting that Gaumata seizes power. Herodotus also introduced the story of the seven nobles conspiring and attacking together. Aside from when exactly Bardia was assassinated, Nothing Herodotus says particularly contradicts anything that Darius and the Behistun inscriptions say. In general, it's regarded as a reliable source. Even the name he uses for Gomata and Bardia is linguistically connected to the latter. Herodotus also introduces the story of the royal women communicating with the conspirators and discovering that Gomata isn't Bardia. The way he explains it is kind of bizarre. Apparently, in Herodotus's version, Cambyses at some earlier point had Gomata's ears cut off as a punishment. He always wore a turban or hood to conceal this, but while he was asleep, Phaidume, daughter of Otanes, felt under his hood and discovered the truth. Apparently, he really committed to wearing that hood all the time, even while asleep, or having sex. Okay, Herodotus. Next, in terms of length and usefulness, but last in terms of when it was actually written, is Pompeius Trogus, or more accurately, Justin's epitome of the Philippic histories of Pompeius Trogus. Justin was a 2nd century Roman who wrote a summary of the work of Pompeius Trogus, who was in turn a 1st century Roman. For the most part, Trogus was probably using Herodotus as a source for most of his work on the early Persians, and generally lines up with the earlier historian. However, there are some key details that they disagree on, mostly in the names. In this version, Praxaspes the Assassin and Patizathes the Magian brother of Gomata are conflated, and Praxaspes the Magus kills the crown prince before installing his brother on the throne. Of course, in this version, Praxaspes doesn't try to expose the crime like he did in Herodotus. 
Stranger still is that he calls Bardia by the name Comates, and the imposter is Oropastes. Neither name has a counterpart in Herodotus, but both do in Old Persian. Comates is a Greekization of Gomada, and Oropastes would be something like Ahura Upasta. Because we only have Trogus in the form of Justin's summary, it doesn't give us much to go on, but those names have led many scholars to think that Pompeius Trogus had an Iranian tradition, or at least another Greek tradition, to work off in addition to Herodotus. Finally, we come to Theseus, whose story is the shortest and sits chronologically between Herodotus and Trogus. Theseus's version may have been long once upon a time, but now his work only survives in the summaries and quotations of other authors. Theseus's version is quite different. This is the version of events where Cambyses intentionally replaced his brother with Gomata, after the Magus subliminally turned the king against Bardia. In this version, Gomata has no brother, and the executioner has no idea he's killing the real prince. Instead, there are three nobles who know the secret. Artasuras, Bagapatis, and Isabatis. This time, Artasuras and Bagapatis play the role of kingmakers and plot to put Gomata on the throne, while Isabatis tries to expose them and gets himself executed for his trouble. Ultimately, in this version, it's Bagapatis and Artasuras, rather than a woman in the harem, who betrayed Gomada and assist the seven conspirators as they sneak into the palace. Not that it changes anything at all about the story, really, but Theseus also reports that Bagapatis had stolen all of Gomada's weapons, and the seven attackers burst into the room while he's in bed with a Babylonian concubine. On realizing that he has no way to defend himself, Gomada smashes a gilded chair and uses the legs as weapons. So there you go, the image of a partially naked Gomada holding broken pieces of furniture fending off seven fully armed men. Give Theseus credit, it's probably the craziest version of an already crazy story. So there are all these different elements and small changes, but the story overall remains more or less the same across all of these different iterations. So why is it that this story shockingly consistent across different versions over 700 years, is still one of the most debated periods in Persian history. Because despite of all this, historians have been casting doubt on the story of Gomada since late antiquity. I think more than any other factor is just how unbelievable the story really is, especially because the Behistun inscription was lost to Western scholars until the 19th century CE, historians were forced to contend with a story about an evil lookalike usurping the throne after the crown prince, a significant member of the royal family was secretly murdered, and nobody ever found out. I'm sure the bits about missing ears and naked chair fighting weren't doing any favors for the ancient authors either. It's just too bizarre to be real. Couple this with more rational authors realizing just how bizarre and unrealistic a lot of Herodotus's other stories were, and people were quick to doubt this one too. Another issue is Herodotus and other ancient authors' tendency to fill in the apparent plot holes of actual history. Gomada seized the throne and took the harem. Well, how didn't his new wives and Bardia's sisters not realize something was up? He locked them away, of course. How did they uncover the exact duplicate was a liar? He'd had his ears cut off. And so on it goes, to create a watertight story so absurd that it can't actually be believed. Of course, this has never meant throwing the whole thing out. Generally, everyone still believed that Darius and his allies killed the sitting king and usurped the throne, but the exact details are suspect. It didn't take much for historians to start suggesting that maybe Darius killed the real Bardia, and this story was a cover-up. Rather than solidifying the classical version of events, the Behistun inscription only adds more fire to the disbelief. The official royal account is such overt propaganda that it only gets harder to believe. Darius talks himself up as the savior of the land and restorer of order, and condemns Gomada as the terrifying spreader of metaphysical chaos. He also goes on to call just about everyone who ever opposed him a liar or an imposter, 
and in a sort of boy-who-cried-wolf scenario, it lessens the initial claim that Bardia was being impersonated. He also places Bardia's death before the Egyptian campaign, but says that it was a secret. That's hard to believe, too. The Crown Prince's absence from either court or the campaign would have been noticed. Herodotus also sets up that the real Bardia dies in transit between the two, thus creating an excuse for secrecy. The official account leaves a gaping hole. The result? Modern historians have to contend with the possibility that the whole story is a lie in and of itself. The theory suggests that Bardia seized de facto control of the empire and started dictating policy while his brother was still alive to settle the growing resentment toward the Persians that formed under Cambyses' tribute and military demands that were necessary to fund the Egyptian campaign. Bardia's refusal to send more troops and money to his brother was tantamount to insurrection. But Cambyses still died in Syria, and then Bardia claimed the throne for himself properly this time. In the process of seizing power, Bardia upset and punished noble families loyal to his brother and robbed them of the heavy tribute they were exacting from their subjects. That divide led seven nobles to conspire against the king and assassinate him for themselves. The ringleader, Darius, was proclaimed king and restored some of the privileges taken by Bardia while removing those gifts granted by his predecessor. To legitimize himself, Darius invented the story of Bardia's early death and used Gomata as a scapegoat. Cambyses' reputation was already soured, so the dead king could take the blame, and providing Gomata as the identity of the recently assassinated Bardia made it so that Darius had not murdered his rightful sovereign. It was a thin veil of legitimacy, but the claims of kings who took over through military might often are. Anyone who knew the whole truth was either dead or benefiting from Darius's rise to power, and so the official story gradually became the only story. Decades later, Herodotus heard this version mixed together with a few other details from the children and grandchildren of Persians who lived through the events. Herodotus filled in the gaps and presented a coherent story. Theseus retold the story as it was passed down to the descendants of the noble families in the Achaemenid court, and did his best not to offend his hosts. The theory ties up most of the loose ends and makes Darius the villain and the usurper trying to play himself off as a legitimate hero. And yet, it's equally hard to believe that Darius made up so many fictions, and there wasn't a contradictory, damning story floating about. Obviously, official Persian sources and Theseus had to toe the party line. Trogus's decision to stick to the official Persian account is also unsurprising. His use of the name Comites implies familiarity with the official Persian form of events, and five centuries passed in which the official version could have become more cemented. On top of that, even if Trogus did present another version, we're stuck with Justin's summary. But even Herodotus only presents the version of events given in the Behistun inscription, with some minor flair. Herodotus frequently presents multiple versions of a story, telling his audience what kind of people pushed each version, and which he prefers. For a good example of that, you can look back to episode 16, Pharaoh Cambyses, where I talk about the different stories surrounding the Egyptian princess Nitetis. It's hard to excuse how a story contradicting Darius didn't circulate, or how and why Herodotus would not have heard that alternate version of events and included it. If Darius did make everything up, then it took less than a century to completely solidify his version of events. It's kind of incredible if true. They couldn't even pin down one official version of Cyrus's royal family after over a century, but the story of the Behistun inscription was solid in less than 80 years. The saving grace for the Darius did it crowd is that the parts of the Persian Empire that Herodotus had access to were far away from the events surrounding Bardia. Herodotus, primarily, had access to the people in Anatolia and Egypt as his sources for Persian history. With all of the drama of 522 occurring thousands of miles away in Persia and Media, the families of Persian nobles in the Western Empire would only have learned about what happened through letters coming out of Persia. 
And if those letters were the official Darius proclamations, then they would have been stuck with the official version of events. If there were any dissenting noble families in the West, then Darius would probably have had them removed from their positions of power, either killing them or forcibly relocating them somewhere his allies could monitor the dissenters. But once again, to make any version of events make sense, we historians have to make up a scenario to fit our evidence. A scenario with minimal historical standing. This has led some scholars over the last few years to come up with theories using every historian's favorite tool, the compromise. Whenever scholars run into a historic debate with two polar opposite camps, the most logical conclusion tends to be that the truth lies somewhere in the middle, with details from both versions being true and more extreme elements being false on both sides. Often that yields pretty good results, but there's so little evidence for 522 that even these compromise theories can sound a bit loony. In 2012, Professor Emrahim Shayagan published one, if not the only book, focusing specifically on the story of Gomada, in which he presents three different compromise interpretations. The book is actually a comparison of Gomada to other stories of evil brothers and impostors in ancient Iranian traditions, called Aspects of History and Epic in Ancient Iran, from Gomada to Wahanam. If I've pronounced even half of the Iranian names here correctly, I'll count myself lucky. I'll post an affiliate link in the description, but don't expect light reading. Even if the book is relatively short, it assumes quite a lot of background knowledge. All three options focus on the different names presented by Herodotus and Trogus. The first option Shagon presents, which he mostly dismisses, posits that there was only ever one usurper. In this version, Cyrus the Great only had one son, and Cambyses left the Magus named Gamada in charge as regent while he was off in Egypt. Gamada serves as the basis for the Greek name Comates in Pompeius Trogus's work. During Cambyses' reign, Gomada held the political position of a viceroy under the old Persian title Pati Kashayathea, literally a partial king. In Greek, Pati Kashayathea became Patizathes, Herodotus's name for Gomada's brother. The theory continues saying that Gomada had a further religious duty with the title Ahura Upasta, meaning Ahura's support. Under this theory, that title yielded the name for Trogus's usurper, Oropastes. In this line of thinking, there is no brother to either Gomada or Cambyses. Finally, when he claimed the throne, Gomada took the throne name Bardia, which translated to Smyrdis in Herodotus. Under this theory, Herodotus and Trogus each recorded a name and a title from the same person, and both misunderstood their separate names and titles as names for different people. Shaegon reigns on this parade, rightly so in my opinion. This theory relies entirely on a Median priest given the regency rather than any cousins or relatives of royal descent or even a trusted Persian nobleman. Being ethnically Persian was an important aspect of kingship. I discussed it back in episode 13, Kingship 101. That alone should have disqualified Gomada, and the theory does nothing to explain the story of Cyrus's second son, uniformly mentioned by all of our sources, and hardly something that even Darius could just invent. An imaginary evil twin is one thing, but quite extreme if he's the imaginary evil twin of an imaginary crown prince. It just doesn't work out. The second theory has more to stand on, but still doesn't have Shaegon's full support. Once again... Patizathes and Oropastes are interpreted as titles. Patizathes still comes from the political office of Padi Kashayathea, and Oropastes still comes from the religious title Ahura Upasta. Likewise, Comates and Smyrdis still come from Gomada and Bardia. However, this time, Gomada and Bardia return to being separate people. Bardia was the crown prince, serving as Padi Kashayathea a viceroy in the Persian eastern provinces. Gomada was a Magian priest with the title Ahura Upasta, serving Cambyses at court. Under this theory, Herodotus and Trogus each heard about a different man, but made the same mistake. They made the title into a name. In Herodotus, the title becomes the brother to the usurper, calling himself Bardia. In Trogus, 
Gomada is incorrectly the name of the crown prince, and Ahura Pasta becomes the name of the imposter while he copies the idea of a brother from Herodotus, but merges it with Prexaspes, the royal counselor and assassin. The problem here is that it does a very good job of explaining the names used, but a poor one of explaining the roles filled by each. How and why did Ahura Upasta Gomada seize power, and what became of Padikashayathia Bardia? And why does Trogus misinterpret Gomada as the name of Cyrus's son if this is all the case? It doesn't fit nicely, but it does fit. The final theory presented by Shaegon, and the one he supports, shakes things up a bit. He seizes on a detail from Herodotus, where it is mentioned that the usurper, Gomada, was left in charge of the royal household. In this interpretation, Padikashayathia is Gomada's title, meaning something closer to steward or vizier than viceroy. Likewise, the title Ahura Upasta is now shifted to Bardia as a religious title bestowed on him as a member of the royal family. In this way, both Trogus and Herodotus now have at least the same name for one man and the title for the other in their accounts, even if they still horribly misinterpret them. This theory further identifies the role of each man and tries to reconcile them with Darius's Behistun inscription. This time, the real Bardia does seize the throne, and the usurper is prompted by a Magian advisor. See, under this line of thinking, Gomada the Vizier is the power and the brains behind the throne, while Bardia is little more than an impotent puppet king. This way, Bardia's death in the official story becomes somewhat metaphorical, and the idea of Gomada seizing power as an imposter refers to him having influence above his station. Honestly, I want to like this theory. It does a pretty good job of being watertight, it explains everything in the Behistun inscription and most of the alterations found in Herodotus and Trogus. Shagon even goes on to add the context of an Assyrian practice where, if the king was threatened by bad omens or supernatural threats, they'd appoint another political figure to play out the role of king and take on the threat to themselves. Think a sort of principle-for-the-day policy to avoid divine punishment. Shagon suggests that Gomada pretending to be Bardia and the two coronations alluded to at Behistun might stem from that tradition. Unfortunately for such a well-polished theory, I still don't totally buy it. It makes a lot of leaps and a lot of assumptions, and ultimately it's, I think it's reaching for something that's just unattainable. The Assyrian connection is interesting, but you don't see a lot of precedent for it in the rest of Persian history. And the assumption that Bardia was a weak puppet and Gamada was a strong advisor are just that. It, they're assumptions. There's nothing in history to actually base them on. At the end of the day, I think the details of the year 522 BC are lost to the history of the Persian Empire. They are so thoroughly covered up by layer upon layer of different account and different theory that we'll never be able to really dig into the actual events unless some truly ridiculous source comes up that says, I am Bardia, king of kings, or I am Gomada, I secretly overthrew Bardia. Something like that would have to come along to clear any of this up for good. Until then, I think every historian and every fan of history gets to have their own opinion on the matter. Just do your best to make it based in what we actually do know from the half-dozen sources we actually do have, even if they all try to contradict each other. Because really, at this point, I think it wouldn't be the history of Persia without a few good contradictions. So with that, I think we have pretty successfully covered the events and people of 522 BC, and next time we'll move on to the actual policies and decisions of the reign of King Bardia, as well as the reactions and counter-reactions that spawned from that. Until then, please come check out the Patreon. If you want to get a History of Persia podcast sticker, you have to sign up either at the $10 level or any level before September 25th, so do that soon. Until then, if you want more information about the show, maps, my bibliography, or the royal family tree of the Persian Empire, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. If you want to support the show, find us on social media, and follow, like, retweet, share, whatever it is you do on that platform. 
and let your friends know about the history of Persia. On Facebook, I'm the History of Persia podcast. On Twitter, I'm at History of Persia. And on Instagram, I'm at History of Persia podcast. You can contact me on any of those platforms, or you can reach out through the contact page of the website, or just send an email to historyofpersiapodcast at gmail.com. I'm always welcome to feedback, critique, or questions, or even if you just want to say hi. Until next time, thank you all again so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.